0: The United States Telecommunications Act of 1996 contains a segment called Title V which is often referred to as the Communications Decency Act of 1996, or CDA. The CDA contains many sections, different portions related to different things that set different terms within this act's auspices, and though there are many important and influential bits of law included in this act and this particular segment of that act, Section 230 is of particular note because it outlines under what circumstances certain types of companies have immunity, and when they don't, when users of their services do things that are illegal. Said another way, if you build a website with a comment section, and someone comes to your site and writes something illegal in that comment section, they incite violence against someone else, for instance, you as the builder of the website would not be legally liable for that person's actions under most circumstances. That person is doing an illegal thing on a page you created, and your page is thus technically delivering that illegal bit of text to the world, but that illegality does not translate over to you because of section 230. This is interesting, in part because of how it divides tech companies from traditional media companies. A newspaper that published the work of someone who was clearly inciting violence would generally be held at least partially accountable for pushing those words. They may not have written them, but they distributed them to the world. A tech company that does a very similar thing in distributing the words of someone else that end up being illegal words would not be liable in the same way. This legal distinctiveness arose because of two lawsuits that were leveled against Internet Service Providers, or ISPs, in the 1990s. And Internet Service Providers are the companies that help people get online. So these days, companies like Comcast, CenturyLink, and AT&T are Internet Service Providers. But back in the day, this was a bit of a Wild West, This was pre-dot-com bubble, pre-online shopping, a good distance pre-smartphone. So there were lots of smaller companies and a few relatively big ones like America Online. But we were still collectively sorting out what this internet thing even was. So keep that in mind when thinking about Section 230, because that's when it was developed. So we had some lawsuits against a couple of early ISPs, And the question was whether these companies that helped people to get online were legally liable for what folks on their networks did once they got there. And it was determined that as long as the relevant companies removed content deemed to be quote, obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable, whether or not such material is constitutionally protected, end quote, and they continued to make a good-faith effort to do so, they would be legally immune to lawsuits and similar legal action resulting from the activities of their users. Though this wasn't a blanket immunity, as there were several exceptions, primarily related to how lawsuits are structured and whether they relate to things like copyright infringement, federal crimes, or privacy violations. In more recent years... Several lawsuits have led to challenges to aspects of this legal concept, whittling it into slightly different versions of itself, though the general rules have remained the same. Publishers of books and magazines and such are held to one standard because it's theorized that they should have a godlike view over what they're publishing. They have editorial powers and exercise those powers before choosing to publish. Tech companies, that also distribute information and various sorts of media, on the other hand, do not have the same editorial scope. They publish asynchronously, with users publishing and distributing stuff constantly, not in predictable chunks, and they publish all kinds of media in much higher quantities than any magazine or book publisher could manage. And no such company could thus have an always-on, all-seeing awareness of what's being published on their network, to the point where they could then consistently exercise editorial judgment over that content, not without ruining or dramatically changing the nature of the service, anyway. If something is brought to their attention, then, they should make a good-faith effort to remove it, and in some cases they might be expected to exercise more proactive culling efforts, as is the case with many types of intellectual property being shared against the will of the owners of said property on many of these networks. But beyond that, these tech companies can kind of slowly work their way through a pile of reported content and still adhere to the letter of this law. Section 230 is seen by many as both an incredibly flawed document and a true bastion of free speech on the internet. This section is why, it's been posited, the Web 2.0 revolution happened in the late 1990s and early 2000s, a revolution defined by a newly enabled interactivity on the web, which allowed people to do things like publish blog posts, host comment sections, share media with each other, and eventually, develop early social networks. This was when YouTube became a thing, when free email services like Hotmail and Yahoo Mail and Gmail were released, and when message boards became web-based forums, the ancestors of sites like Reddit and 4chan. Amazon and Yelp reviews are only really possible because of the protections offered by Section 230, as are Craigslist ads, eBay postings, and Etsy storefronts. This is also why it's thought many of the world's largest and most influential tech companies are based in the United States. Most countries, especially those with thriving non-internet-focused tech sectors, do not have similarly protective laws on the books. The United States, as a consequence, has become a bit of a legal safe haven for such companies, even those that were envisioned or started elsewhere. Legally, it would be somewhat foolhardy, to have your user-generated content publishing platform based anywhere else on the planet. What I'd like to talk about today is the perception of Section 230 in the U.S. as of early 2021, and how a shift in online policy in the European Union could upend some or even many of these protections, not just in the EU, but around the world. (music) listening to Let's Know Things, I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from TechCrunch, and it's entitled, Europe Seizes on Social Media's Purging of Trump to Bang the Drum for Regulation. If you're listening to this episode around the time that it's initially released, It will probably be no surprise to hear that there are some strange, in some cases unprecedented things happening in the United States at the moment. One standout unprecedented thing is that a mob of primarily Trump supporters, QAnon conspiracy theorists, and militant white nationalist organizations attacked the US Capitol building, which at the time contained essentially every member of the United States Congress plus the vice president and some of those attackers reportedly intended to assault, kidnap, and or kill some of those politicians, and some of them did end up killing at least one police officer who was guarding the building and injuring dozens more. They were unsuccessful in that larger attempt Though many of the rioters seemed to have been there for other reasons, like selfie-taking opportunities and the ability to brag about having stormed what one would think would be a heavily fortified bastion of American democracy when they got home and on their favorite social networks, but some of them seemed to have been legitimate insurrectionists and some were perhaps even attempting a coup. As of the day I'm recording this, there are a lot of details that are still unclear or unannounced like the degree to which the outgoing president Trump hoped and aimed for this outcome and whether or not he lit the match and or fanned the flames of what went down whether he originally intended for things to go that direction or not also currently in question is whether some of the congress people inside may have been involved in the attack giving tours to some of the more militant white nationalist rioters the day before, either knowingly or unknowingly, providing them with an insider's experiential map of the capital to share with their fellow attackers so that they'd know where to go and what to do the next day. Honestly, I am still personally processing everything that happened and what's happened since, This is a tricky topic to be neutral on, but I do suspect that it's a subject that will warrant its own episode at some point. But because of the chronological adjacency to the event itself, which again makes neutrality difficult, and because this is almost certainly a still-unfolding story, with follow-up armed gatherings and raids planned in the coming days, some of which might even occur before this episode goes live, it's probably best to set that aside for the time being until there's more and more accurate information available. For the purposes of this episode, though, I bring up this event because it directly triggered another subsequent event that to some people has felt similarly dramatic and monumental. President Trump and many of his allies and some of the platforms where his followers tend to gather were booted off many major online services within a succession of just a few days. The online world has changed the nature and practicalities of communication in many ways, and that's true of both person-to-person communication and person-to-crowd communication. Our potential reach and effectiveness when it comes to both interpersonal chats and international broadcasts has been massively amplified, and arguably few people have used these new tools as successfully as the outgoing President Trump, who may have used them in a way that many people have found to be repellent, but he did successfully utilize them to create a movement that few people in his early days running for the office would have thought him capable of building. Part of why he was able to build that movement, though, is that in the United States we have fairly liberal speech laws, and perhaps even more importantly, in some cases, a significant default level of cultural backing for anything even adjacent to the concept of free speech. That Section 230 law I mentioned in the intro is a tangible manifestation of that belief system, as much as possible in the broadest possible terms we tend to like to avoid banning types of speech and making any rules whatsoever about what people can and cannot say. It feels weird to do that in the U.S., typically. Now, there are some very significant exceptions to this rule, many of which seem to originate with some of the U.S.'s historical biases. For a very long time, for instance, violence was perfectly acceptable in pretty much any form on most types of media, But sexuality was severely limited, and remains so to varying degrees today. You can likewise say horrible things to anyone you like, but on most social networks, you cannot post an image that contains a woman's nipple, though a man's nipple is typically okay. You can deny that the Holocaust happened, and you can claim that the world is flat, but you can't make a specific threat of violence against an elected official. You can also flog and sell more or less any kind of snake oil that you're able to dream up, but you cannot, in general, provide any kind of sex work services. And this is true not just of social networks, but also of payment processors, which often boot folks doing anything that might be construed as sex work from their platforms. Until recently, It seemed as if Section 230 and the collection of online and offline norms related to speech here in the U.S. would allow President Trump and his ilk to do their usual thing, from the beginning of his term in office to the very end of it, four years later. These behaviors often towed the line of what was acceptable without quite crossing that line, though in some cases the line was moved after it was crossed with excuses made by the enabling networks and companies that did the line moving after the fact. Which, frankly, is fair enough. There are excellent arguments to be made for why Trump and his people should have been kicked off these networks ages ago, but there are also rational arguments as to why, despite their repeated line-crossing, some exceptions should be made to these rules, either in the interest of newsworthy information being out there in the public, visible and archivable, or in the interest of the companies in question, making sure that they are not targeted by a vengeful, all-powerful politician and his followers. And that latter excuse is arguably still rational, it's just rational through the lens of trying to survive as the leader of a company, rather than as someone who is perhaps trying to up the level of civil public discourse. After the raid on the Capitol building, though, this dynamic Seems to have changed. And the perhaps somewhat cynical response to this shift in posture toward the outgoing president and his followers is that the social networks and all the other entities that were previously carrying Trump's words and doing deals with him changed their minds because he was only a few weeks from leaving office and they wanted to get in good with the new focus of power in town, the incoming President Biden and his Democratic supporters. It's also possible, though, that true to their words, what would seem to be an attempted coup is actually where they draw the line. As of the day I'm recording this, pretty much all the major social networks, media platforms, and online broadcasting services, alongside numerous banks, corporations, and other entities like the Golfing Championship League, PGA, have dropped Trump and prominent Trump supporters from their networks ceased their business relations with them, and have essentially done everything they can to make it clear that they don't support coups and the toppling of the United States. Wherever you come down on the question of why they severed those connections with the outgoing president, and why all at once, part of what's interesting about this story is that we now know, at least for this election cycle, where the line is drawn for many of these corporate and organizational entities. And where the lines are drawn for the regulators that set the general outline of how these companies must behave if they want to avoid running afoul of the government. And it would seem that the corporations are actually drawing tighter lines than the government at the moment. They are the ones that reined Trump in when the government would or could not. These sorts of lines are drawn in different places in different countries. The United States bangs the drum loud for certain types of free speech while also, on the side, punishing or deplatforming a few choice types of speech. Again, mostly based on our cultural and historical biases. Go someplace else, though, and you'll find subtly or dramatically different norms, different rules, different laws, and different non law, culturally derived standards of operation. In Germany, for instance, Twitter has been banning pro-Nazi accounts for years. That's something that some users in the U.S. have been asking them to do for them for a very long time, and it's a change that has not been made in the U.S. But it turns out, if you want that kind of social network experience without any Nazis on it, all you have to do is change your location settings so that it seems like you're logging in from Germany. Now that is an example of the government creating a framework that then informs where these companies draw their lines. And a lot of these sorts of differences are pretty narrow, like the Nazi thing. Other differences are more broad and substantial, though, including how data is treated in the European Union compared to how it is treated elsewhere, including in the U.S. The Digital Services Act is a piece of legislation that was formally proposed in mid-December of 2020 in the EU alongside another act called the Digital Markets Act. That latter piece of legislation was proposed as a means of counteracting the power wielded by the world's largest tech companies, which in practice, currently at least, means primarily, but not exclusively, U.S.-based tech companies. The former, the Digital Services Act, or DSA, is similar, but rather than being focused on preventing tech companies of a certain scale, with 45 million users or more, from abusing their power and keeping competitors from arising, like the DMA, it's instead meant to create new obligations for these companies, so that they will be held liable for the content posted to their platforms. And if they don't live up to these obligations, to the satisfaction of EU leadership they could be fined up to 6% of their total annual revenue. This is a pretty serious move, in part because the EU is such a huge market, so a company that is either banned from doing legal business there or fined a substantial portion of their revenue because they didn't live up to local laws will be at a significant disadvantage both locally and globally. But this is also a big deal because of something called extraterritorial jurisdiction, or ETJ, which basically means that this is a law that applies within the borders of the EU, but also on a practical level everywhere else on the planet that these companies operate. To understand how that's possible and why it works that way, Consider another fairly recent European Union-based piece of legislation, the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR. The GDPR was implemented in 2018 and applies to any entity collecting or processing data generated by EU citizens. And it basically says that those citizens have a lot more rights over their personal data than most companies tend to assume by default. There's a lot more to this law, but the reason that today, in early 2020, most websites have some indication of how your data is used, and generally even ask your permission to use that data, including things like cookies and other sorts of tracking mechanisms, all of that is because of the GDPR. This law only technically serves EU citizens. But because the internet is accessible by EU citizens universally, it generally makes more sense to build one website that asks all users if they can use cookies to track their movement, rather than attempting to build something that sorts just one category of users, EU citizens, out of that main flow so that they can be served a different experience. Doing so is technically possible, but it could also be done imperfectly, which would mean perhaps running afoul of the EU government. So almost always, just adhering to the tenets of these sorts of laws, no matter where you are located, because there's a chance someone from the EU could visit your website, is prudent. This is not always the way laws and regulations gain extraterritorial jurisdiction. Sometimes one government will declare it and another government will agree to have that law or regulation apply to their citizens as well while in other cases, laws will be declared by one country and the other country will not agree to have it apply to their citizens, and there will then be a resulting gray area, which is sometimes called a claimed ETJ. But in this case, the ETJ is practical rather than formal. The GDPR became a global thing because it would have been inconvenient and expensive to do it any other way, and it's a fair bet that the DSA and DMA rules that I mentioned will be the same. Thus, the discussion that's arisen in the United States about Section 230, a law that pretty much everyone hates for one reason or another, though often for different reasons, and though most will agree that it also brings some benefits alongside all the flaws, the discussion around this piece of legislation might be a bit pointless within just a few years, because the Digital Services Act could render it essentially moot. You could try to build different experiences for folks in the EU and separate that out from the experiences provided to everyone else. But the EU being such a large and important market, and the internet being such an imperfect environment in which to attempt to partition content with any degree of accuracy, it's far more likely that the DSA will become the dominant legal force that regulates the spaces in which big tech companies operate online. And Section 230 will either live on as a neutered regulatory document superseded by this one out of the EU, or it will be symbolically killed off at some point by a politician who wants to score some points with some portion of their constituents. Interestingly, the EU has reached out to the incoming Biden administration and offered to work together to build meaningful, effective online regulation together, which is no doubt kind of a power move because the European Union has arguably done a lot more work in this space than any comparable political entity, and them reaching out like that is therefore mostly just an offer for them to share their regulatory wealth with a government that has done Far less of that kind of footwork up till this point. But it's also potentially an opportunity to refine some of what worked with Section 230, to discard what didn't, and to work with the prominent online force and economic market across the ocean to develop guidelines that make more sense for everyone, and which perhaps will help the companies that are currently scrambling to figure out what they stand for what to do, and what they might be punished for, whatever steps they end up taking next, it could provide those companies with more guidance, even if the regulations that emerge from that kind of relationship are a bit cumbersome and costly and time-consuming for them to implement. At least, they will know what their responsibilities are, and will not have to make the types of decisions that they've had to make recently, much to their own chagrin. The tricky nature of extraterritorial jurisdiction will not end here. And that's why it's an important concept to understand and to be thinking about. Consider, for instance, how important a market China is for some companies, and how Chinese regulators have already managed to get TikTok influencers and a bunch of brands that want to advertise on that particular Chinese built social network platform, how they've gotten them to adhere to their localized. Censorship standards all around the world, avoiding certain topics, saying nice things about the Chinese government so that they get more favor from the TikTok algorithm, things like that. And they did this without any formal legal declaration, just economic incentives. That is a type of ETJ as well, and it's an increasingly common tool for governments and economic entities around the world to both leverage and to be influenced by. Rather than being about Section 230, takedowns of politicians and their supporters, or even EU efforts to provide their citizenry with more data rights then, the larger discussion here is actually about sovereignty and how that concept applies or fails to apply in an online world that is splintering into cultural and regulatory kingdoms, but which is nonetheless very much still connected in numerous meaningful ways. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called The Weirdest People in the World, How the West Became Psychologically Peculiar and Particularly Prosperous, by Joseph Henrich. This is a book about... A designation that you might have heard before, especially if you've maybe taken a sociology class or read something about statistics or research. WEIRD is an acronym that means Western, Educated, Industrial, Rich, and Democratic. And these are labels that apply to the vast majority of people who are at the center of psychological research, for instance, because the majority of psychology research projects actually takes place. In Western educational campuses, students basically go in and either as a requirement of the classes that they're taking or for money in some cases, they become research subjects. And consequently, it's a very narrow demographic that we are testing for all kinds of things. And it's not just psychology, it's psychology, it's the medicines that we do, it's the norms and standards that we're designating. We are making an alarming number of assumptions based on the norms and habits and cultural mores and backgrounds and experiences of a very, very, very small slice of humanity. And this book goes through why that's the case, why this group is so different. What exactly is different about this group, not in just a positive and negative way, but what's distinct, because all groups are distinct in different ways, no matter what trait you use to divide those people up, and then what the consequences are for our having focused so specifically on this one group of people for so long, and what it says about some of the knowledge that we've accrued, and how we might do better in the future. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Weirdest People in the World by Joseph Henrich. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, at brainlenses.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can sign up to receive my daily news-centric email at yesterdaysnewsletter.com and you can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I am Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright and I'll talk to you again next week.